This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, today we are giving the people what they want. We have with us a theological entrepreneur, the literal most interesting and substantive person on Twitter, the proprietor of two different and awesome substacks, Eitzah Sadeh, dedicated to weekly biblical commentary and what is called thinking, which is a philosophical diary of sorts. He's the incredible Zohar Atkins, and we're going to talk about, well, what else? Thinking. So uh, let's set this bad boy up. There's this strange moment in Genesis where the narrative basically pauses its historical trajectory and it launches into this interlude about how the biblical hero Isaac went around digging wells, three wells to be exact. And the first two were unsuccessful and caused tension between Isaac and his neighbors who end up ruining them. But the third well is a success and leads to peace and mutual flourishing for Isaac and for the surrounding communities. Now, this interlude totally comes out of nowhere. But as biblical commentators, ancient and modern, observed, it's clearly meant to be of great significance since the Bible places it at the very close of the Isaac story, right before he transitions into a supporting cast member in the spinoff show of Jacob and Esau. So, for example, the rabbis of the Talmud understood the three wells as a metaphor for the three great eras of Jewish history with a third yet to come. The great church father, Ambrose of Milan, in the 4th century thought the three wells represented the complete intellectual life, moral philosophy, natural philosophy, and mysticism. But whatever its ultimate meaning, my question is actually a simple one. It's a literary one. Why does Isaac have to dig three wells? Why not just dig a well? What was wrong with the first two? And actually, my grandfather's uncle towering theologian of the mid-20th century, Rabbi Joseph Baumel, he's actually the founder of the Crown Heights Yeshiva, an underrated genius and hero in American Jewish history. He offered this brilliant answer. He noted that if you look at the actual text of the story about the wells in Genesis 26, you'll note a very obvious key difference between the first two wells and the third. Isaac had other people, his workers, dig the first two wells on his behalf, but the third well he dug himself. And in actuality, Isaac spent most of his life relying on intermediaries. God doesn't denounce his birth to Isaac's mother, Sarah, directly, but through an angelic messenger. Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, but he ends up bringing a ram in his place. Isaac doesn't find a wife for himself. Abraham's servant finds one on his behalf. So the greatest challenge that Isaac faced was, in a sense, deeply modern. Isaac's world, like our own today, had become much more complex than the previous generations. Abraham was a nomad, while Isaac was an agrarian landowner. Abraham dealt with warlords, but Isaac interacted with statesmen. And as Isaac's world expanded, also like our own, it became easier to become detached and and alienated from so much of what goes into human existence. I mean, think about our own world. The division of labor in a market economy means you can pretty much get anything you need or even just want at the click of a button without having to bother yourself about how it gets made and shipped. And this is an enormous blessing. Enormous. We shouldn't want to go back to the prior reality. And societal progress is what God wants. As legendary investor Peter Thiel points out, we'll come back to him later, the Bible begins with a garden, but it ends with a city. But there's a danger here which is that some things, in fact, some of the most important things, we need to do ourselves, and we cannot do through intermediaries, and we dare not do through intermediaries. And for Isaac, it was providing for his family, for digging a well, 
but it could also be love, gratitude, friendship, and I think most importantly, learning and thinking. Now, the temptation in this era of information overload is to turn thinking into just another thing like we let others, whether other people or machines or apps, do for us. Like, get an app to summarize a great book for you. Because actually doing it yourself, honestly, can just seem as daunting as trying to, like, grow your own wheat and make your own flour or whatever. But is there a way to push back against this tendency? Should we want to? So to unpack all of this, I brought on probably the most thoughtful person I know. He's literally, I'm not exaggerating, the best person to follow on Twitter. And you're a fool if you don't follow him. And by contrast, you are a wise person if you do. You learn more per word from him, not only than anyone else on Twitter, but anyone else anywhere. He's my friend, the amazing Zohar Atkins. Zohar, thank you so much for being here. Wow, that was gorgeous. And thank you. Well, Zohar, you're gorgeous, and I'm so excited that you're here. This is amazing. So here's where I want to start. I want to get into a million things. I actually told you before the podcast, this was an impossible one to prepare for because there are just so many different directions you could go. This could be an entire podcast on like Leo Strauss or Heraclitus or what have you, but it's not going to be. We're going to push through. So you have become famous on Twitter, certainly famous in my corner of the universe, but it will only continue to grow for your philosophy mega threads, which are, for those who are not familiar, these are 100 plus tweet Twitter threads, each one on a great and to Zohar important and to all of us, I think, important thinker. You could find them all on Twitter. You can find them all at Zohar's Twitter account. Zohar, can you tell a little bit about how you started doing them and how you prepare each one and how you think about them? So last year, there was a, a Twitter account called Threadapalooza that encouraged people to basically write 100 tweets in the month of December on any topic that they had something to say for 100 tweets on. And they compare themselves to this other initiative called NanoMopo, I think it was. There's a month where people try to write a poem a day or an essay a day in November. It's either that or Movember. <laughs> exactly. I saw one on China by Bern Hobart, and I thought, oh, that's really cool, both the content and the medium. And what else are you going to do in a pandemic than experiment? So I just did one on Heidegger because I have endless things to say about him. I did my PhD on him, and you know, he's a very controversial figure. And it was well-received, surprisingly. And so I thought, all right, well, let's product market fit. Let's see if this, <laughs> uh, this was a fluke. And, and each time I did one, it found an audience, and so now it's just become kind of a thing that I do. Every month I try to write two, and, and now I've done 20, so maybe it will be a book. <laughs> so first of all, pre-ordering. Second of all, I actually want to start with that example you gave. I actually became aware of you in university because I just had heard about you and how brilliant you were, and I had particularly heard that you were a Heidegger guy. That was how I was introduced to you kind of from afar. Why Heidegger? Great question. Uh, I probably give a different answer every time I'm asked. <laughs> it's like my temperature check. Very Heideggerian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one reason is just, in a sense, luck. I had an amazing teacher when I was an undergraduate at Brown when I was 19 who exposed me to Heidegger and I fell in love. And so, and Heidegger is very difficult and I think I like an intellectual challenge. So those two things, and he wrote a lot. He wrote over 100 books, not all of which were published in his lifetime. But this sort of intellectual challenge of it and the allure of something deep being there set me on a quest to want to master this guy's work. In terms of why I think he matters to me and matters today, so one reason is his critique of rationalism. 
you know, any hokey new age person can criticize reason. But when you have a serious philosopher who's read everything, come to the conclusion that reason isn't what it's cracked up to be, you take it seriously. Secondly, is that Heidegger started off as a kind of more scientific, analytic writer, and he gets increasingly weird and poetic. And I found that compelling, too, as somebody who enjoys art and who also writes poetry. I found a kind of permission in that to say, you know, yes, we have this analytic side, but we also need to find modes of expression that get beyond just description and information. I could go on. I mean, I think like Heidegger's spiritual journey is interesting to me, but, you know, and obviously the Nazism and the fact that he influenced so many Jewish thinkers makes it particularly personal. I, I think of him as a kind of Bilam figure. Uh, that metaphor is not my own, but the idea of like a prophet from a kind of dark shadow world that still has something to teach us. That was exactly where I, I was hoping to start with this, because one of the things that I've noticed from uh, having voraciously consumed all of your mega threads is that you're like obsessed with modern thinkers. And by modern, I just mean like chronologically modern. So it's like Walter Benjamin, it's Adorno, it's Leo Strauss, it's Hannah Arendt. It's all people who are sort of like post the rational takeover of humanity. There are two exceptions, and one of them is not even really an exception. So it's like you did a mega thread on Heraclitus, but he almost is equally modern in the sense that he's pre-Socratic. So he predates the rational revolution. As far as I can tell, the only exception to this, and even looking at your prognostications of ones that you're going to do, uh, Rekur, of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the only exception is Maimonides. Maimonides is a figure from like the heart of the rational tradition as it kind of had taken hold of, of Europe in the West and far beyond Europe, obviously, in the Muslim world, which in many ways was its stronghold. And why, of all the thinkers that you chose from outside the period that holds your interest, why Maimonides? Oh, I would note, I think Spinoza also falls into the category. Well, that's they, true. Ma Maimonides and Spinoza are, are maybe the two exceptions. Right, that's true. Um, and maybe mirror images of each other. So actually, I follow Strauss in my appreciation for Maimonides because I think that for Strauss, Maimonides is different from other medievals in, in his quote-unquote respect for the law as autonomous. That is to say, he didn't necessarily think that the law was fundamentally rational, even though he sought to give reasons for why we do the laws. He kind of felt that you would not be able to reason your way to law. And so even though Maimonides was a philosopher, he believed that Aristotle was one of the greatest people who ever lived, and that Aristotle lived the best life you could live, and Aristotle wasn't a Jew and didn't keep the Torah. So as a philosopher, Maimonides is maybe not secular because he didn't live in modern times, but there's no reason why one would have to keep Jewish law or have to belong to a tradition. One could just be a philosopher. But Maimonides obviously was a community leader, a rabbi, a jurist, a posaic, if you will. And he also wrote codes of Jewish law. So it's actually the fact that he stood in two worlds. That's how I relate to it. That makes him compelling to me. That yes, he had a rational project, a project of truth-seeking, but that wasn't his only goal. If you read Halbertal's book on Maimonides, he talks about how Maimonides didn't only value truth, he also valued being a good community member, being a compassionate person. And obviously, if you only value the one without truth, then that makes you wishy-washy. If you just care about truth, you could end up being a hardliner, a zealot. So I think that tension between first principles thinking, but also trying to better people's lives, I, that's how I relate to Maimonides as an example. 
And and actually for myself, like you know, Lahav deal. I, <laughs> I have a lot. I have a lot to read uh, and to think about before I could even anticipate coming close. But Maimonides' choice to be a rabbi and not just to be a philosopher is very much an inspiration to me. What's interesting about Maimonides, and I think Tversky points this out in his critique of Leo Strauss's reading of Maimonides, is that just in terms of taking Maimonides at his word, even if you've uncovered sort of the true Maimonides, just in terms of how he allocates his time, he spends vastly more time compiling his law code, the Mishnah Torah, than he does writing any of his philosophical works, particularly the Guide for the Perplexed. And so I think almost to sharpen the point, is it possible, actually, let me let me even go in a different direction. Is it possible that the actual mistaken reading of Maimonides is, in fact, Strauss's reading? And Maimonides means to sort of like appear as a as a philosopher who thinks that Aristotle lived the best possible life. But in reality, beneath the surface is lurking the legalist, the mitzvah obsessed Maimonides. I think uh, that's fascinating. Whichever way you want to tell the story, he was a person of double identity. And I've heard you talk on this podcast, which I love, about Joseph as similarly having a double identity, you know, being both a Jew and also being very much of Egypt. And that's often true of Jewish leaders in the Torah. You have Esther living in Persia, Mm. but also being concealed in her Jewishness. And of course, Moses, most iconically, is raised in Pharaoh's palace. And Maimonides is named after Moses. From Moses to Moses, there was no one like Moses. So that, I, that's how I relate to Maimonides. He's a person of double identity. And we'll never really know where his loyalty was. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he had dual loyalty. And I find that beautiful. So that actually is, is a perfect transition. Because what I want to talk about is sort of, there's this tradition of reading the Bible sort of in a contemporary Western context and, and even not so recent, which is sort of to try and read the Bible for its ethics. And this ends up pretty rapidly kind of devolving into either dismissal of the Bible as sort of like, you know, like, uh, like Greek philosophy for dummies. But if you want the advanced seminar, you just read the philosophers. Or it's, apolo- or it's just straight-up apologetic. So there's a book that came out recently. It's actually pretty good by John Barton. I think it's like Ethics of Ancient Israel or, some, or Ancient Israelite Ethics or something like that. But he's a, sort of a biblical scholar in the academy. But the thing that bothered me about it is he spends like the first 50 pages apologizing for how the Bible's not Socrates. And it's not systematic. And so, But maybe we can still get some ethics out of it if we try hard enough. So on the one hand, this offends my sensibilities, not in that I take offense at it, but I sort of see it as a vulgar approach to reading the Bible. But I think it is true that we can pretty plainly see that the Bible is doing something different from Greek philosophy. It's not worse. In fact, betraying my biases, I think it's better in all sorts of ways, but it's definitely different. So what's the Bible doing that is different? And why should someone today wish to care about it? Wow. I could go in so many directions on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why I invited you on. (laughs) First, I just wanted to just make a small point on the word ethics itself, one that I got from Heidegger. So some of us might know that ethics is related to ethos or character. But for Heidegger, I believe he writes about this in his letter on humanism. Though the word for ethics actually comes from a deeper place than even character. And actually, it's related to the word ethia, which is a field a physical field to which stray horses run after they've had enough wandering. I believe the reference is in Homer. 
So if you think of ethics actually as a place that we return to, that's fascinating. In Jewish language, I'd say that ethics is what we discover in the process of teshuva. You cannot come to ethical understanding except through failure and understanding. It's not that you know in advance what the ethical thing is to do. The second point on that is that the original meaning of so many of our Western terms is poetic and it's physical, it's tangible. So to your question about what makes Torah great, I would say we are not abstract. We at least start off in the narrative and in the metaphor, and then we come to principles on the basis of that. If you read the history of philosophy, also what happened and why Heidegger liked the pre-Socratics was because they give us a taste for philosophy that's more like Torah. Philosophy that's more about I love that thinking of ethics as a physical place rather than as this sort of abstraction that you learn in philosophy 101 class. So that actually leads me directly to an observation about you, which is the second time I encountered you was as an editor for Lair House, which is sort of a publication for Jewish thought that I helped found online. And the stuff that we published from you early on was unique in that we were publishing poetry. And you've written some beautiful poetry, and I think sort of intellectually, it's not an accident because the poetic, the pre-rational and the post-rational is sort of at the heart of your project. And I think it's interesting then to sort of note that we tend, I think probably because of Plato, to think of poetry and great philosophy as like opposed. And yet, it's precisely in the Bible that Poetry is kind of like the culmination, right? Like sort of the Bible starts with historical narratives, but it culminates in poetry. Whether you look at sort of the end of Deuteronomy or just the end of the Bible, you go to the Psalms and Proverbs and so forth. I think to look at great Jewish or Christian learning today, it's become like heavily prosified. So whether we think about the great desire for a return to like scholasticism amongst traditional Catholics, or whether you think of the heavily analytical style that goes on in the contemporary Jewish house of study in, in a yeshiva, let's say, in a Beit Midrash, poetry seems absent in both cases. How do we get poetry back? Love the question. <laughs> well, the first thing I'll say is that I don't define poetry only in terms of meter or line breaks or the kinds of things that you might learn in Poetry 101. I think broadly poetry also from the Greek. So poesis means to make, but it actually, again, from Heidegger, means to reveal. Even calling it Poetry 101, by the way, is like a prosification of poetry. <laughs> of course. <laughs> poetry means revealing. And in that sense, everything is poetry. Everything that reveals is poetic. What makes poetry poetry is that it reveals the fact that it reveals. It reveals mm. the fact that what it reveals is limited. And so it simultaneously gives and takes. It gives us an image and tells us it's just an image. Maimonides was critical of positive theology because for him, as a philosopher, God is fundamentally unknowable. By positive theology, you mean saying things about God, meaning describing God, saying God is X, right? Exactly. Saying God is good, even. Saying God is kind. Right. Of course, you can say that God manifests those qualities or we experience God in those ways. But what you can say of God fundamentally is that God is not anything that we can say. So Maimonides is part of a tradition called the Via Negativa that is very austere. And Kabbalah, by contrast, and I'm named Zohar, so I'm partial to this tradition, is actually about delighting in imagery. 
And you can see why delighting in imagery would be a problem if you're a strict monotheist because you might come to worship the image. What do you mean God is six rivers? That's ridiculous. That's idolatry. But when you realize that what you're saying is a poem, I think what you're trying to do is negotiate that tension. You're trying to say, I'm using an image to give me an experience, but I'm not going to conflate the image with the reality. So in my view, the negative theologians are wrong to prescribe art. I love it. So the reason why we don't have poetry is because we still have that fear of what of all the things that poetry can incite in us. But the way to bring poetry back is to, one, realize that philosophy itself is poetic. It's just poetry using the units of concepts rather than the units of meter. And then on the flip side, it's to realize that poetry isn't anti-philosophical. Poetry is saying, we can say nothing of God. All right, now let's talk about God. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So I knew I would run into this problem in this interview, which is that now I have four different directions that I want to go in. Okay, I'm going to try and go in all four, but we're going to have to do them linearly because to borrow from Heraclitus, we only have one moment in time to live. So we're going to have to choose wisely. Okay. To say that sort of the tradition of the via negativa is wrong to prescribe art is obviously something that speaks very deeply to me, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows. So I actually want to talk about contemporary art, which I have a great fondness and affinity for. And I think sort of in many ways, the mistake that sort of the critiques of the Via Negativa make is that they dismiss popular art. And I think that's also a mistake because I think what they think they're dismissing is bad taste. But what they're really dismissing is society. Um, Why is almost every important, great popular song of the last century a love song? Like of all the virtues we could have chosen, like over half the Beatles catalog is made up of love songs. There's a musicologist who actually tabulated this. Why is almost every great, important, popular song of the last century about love? Wow. Firstly, that's just a beautiful question. (laughs) I just sit with that. (laughs) Anything I say will be lesser than the question. Oh, man. I nailed it. (laughs) That that being said, why not riff? Um, (laughs) By the way, that was like, that was like the, that's sort of like the great motto of all the jam bands. So let's do it, right? We're we're post Beatles. I would say that love songs are far older than love songs, meaning in a sense, poetry has always been about love and uh, lyric poetry, which just means poetry recited on the lyre, is the origin of all modern lyric, all modern song, right? And the essence of lyric is an I, a speaker, addressing a you. That relationship doesn't have to be a relationship of love, but I would argue that whether it's romantic love or some other kind of relationship, the simple gesture of a speaker reaching out to a person or a figure not there asking, will you be here in this poem with me, is a kind of request for love. And I think you mentioned unrequited love specifically. So I would say that in a sense, love and unrequited love are the same. I don't mean that in a tragic way. I mean that in the way that Robert Haas says that longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. So we actually need unrequited love in our relationships, even our good relationships, because that's what keeps us longing. That's what keeps us feeling that we don't know the other person and therefore that there's more to learn. So love is a synonym for not knowing. Mm. But at the same time, and this goes back to the negative theologians, if you only don't know, then you have no relationship. So love is the request for intimacy and connection and communication in the face of mystery. It's the paradox of imminence and transcendence. 
it's the Shekhinah dwelling with the people in the wilderness in the form of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. The poem is the tabernacle. Right. That's the paradox of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It's this moment where the people ask for Sinai, which is by definition a one-time revelatory event, to be permanent. And in making it permanent, it's sort of no longer Sinai, right? So that's actually the second direction that I wanted to go in the previous question. So I'm going to try and have my cake and eat it too. I talked about on a previous episode with Antonio Garcia Martinez about my gripes with the scientific revolution, not with the scientific revolution per se, but just with some of the alternate possibilities that the revolution could have taken. And in particular, I was thinking of critiques from the period of the scientific revolution of the revolution itself, not by people who are sort of like opposed to progress or science, which is sort of the caricature of anyone who who responded to the materialists, but actually of people who like thought that just the science of what we now think of as the scientific revolution was just too narrow. So you have a lot of mainstream versions of this, but a lot of the thinkers who launched that critique of the scientific revolution, like during the 18th century, were very prominent Jewish thinkers who, again, were not sort of pushing for like a return to nomadic agrarian times. On the contrary, wanted the scientific revolution to go a lot further than it did. So just to give an example, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who's one of the great and prolific rabbinic writers and thinkers of the 18th century, who lived mostly in Altoona. So he, he sort of like launches this critique of modern medicine right, and of surgery, which had become really popular in sort of the German principalities of the time. He thought it was just too materialistic and narrow. Like imagine just hacking people apart and causing them lots of pain. He advocated for much more attention paid to alchemy, which he thought was a way not to like reject the material, but to sort of expand your your scope of the world and see that there actually are more than just raw basic materialism in the world. The Alter Rebbe, right, the first Hasidic rabbi of, of Lubavitch, what today people know as Chabad, also sort of had this perspective on the scientific revolution where he sort of talks about this great broadening of our physical accomplishments, which he thought was like a genuine advance, but at the same time, a narrowing of our spiritual horizons. So he points out that, you know, Egypt had magicians, right? Like if you read the Bible and take it seriously, like Egypt had magicians. And when the materialists respond and say, well, the Bible's just making that up, he takes that as sort of a confirmation of his point. Like, see, you're so narrow-minded, you can't even imagine a world in which forces beyond the material are real. And I actually have a lot of sympathy for that retort. So what's interesting is that I think people forget that this critique or this line of thinking wasn't just shared by sort of critics of the materialists or of Bacon or whomever, but it's actually shared by some of the proponents or the central figures of the scientific revolution itself, Paracelsus, Newton, Henry Moore. What all of these figures have in common is that they were great scientists and not but, but and they actually saw the key to making their discoveries make sense, to lending them any coherence, actually in Jewish mysticism. So they were all deep scholars and practitioners of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. So my question for you, because you raised it earlier, is I actually think we were this close. I mean, podcasts are a famously non-visual medium, so I'm holding my fingers very close together. We were this close to having a scientific revolution that appreciated and understood and was rooted in the expansiveness of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, for whatever reason, we didn't get it. But if we were to decide to rescue the world today, 
and bring back or, or sort of reinject it with with Jewish mysticism, with Kabbalah, what are the lessons that we should want to take from it? Like if if Zohar Atkins, Kishmo Kenhu, which in English means uh, sort of is is the appropriate bearer of his name, the Zohar being the signal work of Jewish mysticism, what should we want the world to learn or take from Jewish mysticism today in our sort of post-scientific revolution, post-rational world? Well, I will say that Hegel... Uh, and many of the German romantics, Schelling as well, were also reading Christian Kabbalah. And there are theories that even the Hegelian dialectic is itself fashioned on the Lurianic ideal of creation being a tripartite process of making, breaking, and correcting. So in a sense, we do have a Kabbalistic world, at least in certain ways. But your question is really about what it, what it means to be a scientist open to the possibility of something other than scientism. And it's a hard question because in my view, if Kabbalah were to become a dominant mode, it would fall prey to all the problems that any dominant mode falls prey to, the corruption of being the hegemon. In a way, the power of it is as counterculture, as alternative. I'm not sure that you can make anything into a method and have it do justice to the human condition. I think there's something tyrannical about method itself. That's a point that I've got from reading Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. It's a point I also found in Heidegger. I think it has to do with the problem of scale. Science is about what's repeatable and verifiable. Let's say that you are more open to other kinds of science the kinds that involve faith healing or, or what have you, or, or incantation. Let's say that you are even able to standardize those things. I think they would lose their power because a good part of the power of these exceptions is that they're exceptions. It's that they can't stand up to the magnifying glass. And I don't think that means that the world is irrational. I just think that it, it's kind of a Heisenberg thing where the moment you try to codify knowledge, you're going to lose out on those things, which by virtue of looking at them go away. Like um, Orpheus turns to look at Eurydice, and then in the moment he sees her, she's gone. So science is the light. Science is the enlightenment. By definition, it cannot see those things which belong in the underworld. I think there's a way to read that perspective on mysticism as a critique of power. But I wonder, is that critique sort of like wrongheaded? Meaning it's a critique of hegemony. It's a critique of imperialism, of domination. But one of the interesting things about the Hebrew Bible is it doesn't shy away from political power. It actually insists on political power. But what it does sort of uniquely in the ancient world and in, really in the modern world, it's really the only tradition that does this, is it insists on a society that has all of the apparatus of political power and law and culture. But then it prescribes a, an inviolable boundary beyond which it can't go. So there's no ethic of conquest in the Hebrew Bible. And in fact, conquest is is like the evil that the at least the prophetic literature identifies both in Israel and in other nations. So is there a way for Jewish mysticism to sort of mirror that in that it does have some sort of power? It's not like forever subterranean, but it has a boundary beyond which it can't go. And in doing so and sort of in limiting itself voluntarily for the good of itself and sort of teaches science that lesson as well, which it desperately needs to learn. I'm down with that. I think that sociology of science would reveal certain features of science that science itself would be embarrassed about. 
But that being said, in, in science's self-conception, you should be able to learn science on your own or from books or just from reading an article. And I think one of the powers of mysticism in its self-conception is that generally it's a masora, it's a tradition where you learn through apprenticeship. And for good reasons, sociological and economic, apprenticeship is kind of a dying form. And it's definitely going to lose in the world of globalization, which focuses on automating everything. So that's why I mean that mysticism is subterranean, because the power of an oral tradition is just by definition not the kind of thing that you're going to see validated in the world of university journals or social media shoutouts or profiles in the New York Times. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Her oral tradition is the original death of the author. Exactly. I, I, I'm not saying that we should make certain theories popular that are currently being rejected. I kind of agree with the scientists that boundaries need to be drawn um, on the axis of, is this verifiable? Is it reproducible? Et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, with all the criticisms you can make of scientific method and, and, and scientific sociology. But I, I'm partial to an apprenticeship model. Like I'm not bought in that I want to just be a scientist. And so uh, I don't know where you find masters and where the master-student relationship also holds up as a relationship worth aspiring to in an age where we're now so suspicious of authority and power difference. But that's where I see the power of mysticism as a critique of science, is saying there are actually things you can get firsthand from witnessing, but you're not necessarily going to be able to write a book and transmit that in book form. And I think that was the power of Socrates. He was a philosopher in the streets. Plato's work commemorates that in the form of code. And we did write down the oral law, but nevertheless, to conflate the Mishnah and the Talmud with oral law is a category mistake. Writing down the oral law, which is sort of the traditional element of Jewish tradition, I suppose I, I suppose you'd say, it's interesting, and I kind of referenced this earlier, half in jest, but now I'm coming back to it, which is Roland Bart, a modern theorist, has this idea that the author, the idea of an author, is this sort of like relentlessly modern commodified thing, right? Where a person kind of like owns the knowledge that he or she produces, and we should want to reject that, and that has all sorts of like interpretative implications, like if you don't have to worry about what an author either intends or maybe what an author did communicate regardless of what he or she intended, that kind of has all sorts of interpretative implications. But I'm more interested in the idea of like, Forget capitalism, quantification, you know, interpretation, whether you're bound by anything, relativism, blah, 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 what have you. I'm just more interested in the idea that you've promulgated just now, which is that there's something remarkable about a tradition like the Talmud or the Mishnah, for example, or, I mean, just go into the works of the Bible, right? So the book of Samuel, I almost think it's like tongue in cheek. Like the rabbis say, like Samuel wrote the book of Samuel. Well, maybe there's nothing that prevents that from being the case and the chronology would work, but there's nothing about the book of Samuel that makes it seem like an authored work. It's not written in the first person. And you have books of the Bible that are like that. For example, the book of Nehemiah is written as a memoir by Nehemiah, but most are not. And I think there's something really interesting about an entire tradition, namely the Jewish tradition, that for not only long stretches of its history, but for the consensus, most important stretches of its history, entirely just dispenses with the concept of an author. Like nobody owns this tradition. So the contemporary equivalent of that would be, I think what you're describing as sort of like an apprentice model 
but wouldn't that apprentice model like require the teachers to understand that they themselves are like also apprentices and in a world of credentialism, how do we recover or rescue that? Well, I do think that it takes great humility to be a master, if you will. Heidegger says that what differentiates a teacher from a student is that the teacher models what it is to let learn. In other words, the teacher deserves to be at the front of the classroom because the teacher shows what it is to be an ideal student. And I find that very compelling. I also find it to be very Jewish. It's certainly at odds with credentialism, and I don't have anything against credentialism per se, because credentialism is a way of making certain things feel safe. And in a probabilistic universe, you should probably go with a credential over not, even if it's also true that people abuse credentials. And it's also true that you're going to miss out on great things if you only go with the PhD or the MD. You know, you're not safe. But as a matter of statistics, it's probably an okay rule of thumb if you don't have the time to go and investigate for yourself. Each time, does this person deserve to be called an expert? I mean, they can be very exhausting. I do like the model of decentralized knowledge. Again, maybe this is just my diaspora Jewish way speaking, I don't know. But it's kind of amazing that three rabbis can just get together and form a Beit Din. A Jewish court. Yeah, a Jewish court. We have our intra-Jewish arguments But even within those who feel part of the same community, there's so much room for disagreement. And I find that profound and a kind of early model of pluralism, if you will. And then the second point, which I'm not quite sure if this exactly relates, but I just have to share it because it's a juicy image. The Targum Onkelis, the supposed translator of the Bible into Aramaic, is featured on a page of Talmud. He, He actually grew up as a Roman and was prosecuted because he converted And when all these Roman soldiers are sent to kill him, he persuades them not to and to also convert. And the way that he does it is by contrasting the Jewish conception of God with the Roman conception of the Caesar. The Roman Caesar stands atop the hierarchy and orders a command, and then each underling has to follow the chain of command. Whereas in his view, the Jewish God doesn't stand at the top of the hierarchy, but dwells with the people and lights their torches for them so that they can shine the way. That, I mean, that's beautiful. And that actually providentially leads really directly to the very last question I wanted to ask you, which is less of a question and more of a presentation of my reading of Zohar Atkins that I wanted to present for your assessment. And that is... When I think of you, I think of a great book that Christine Hayes wrote. She's a historian of Talmud and rabbinic literature at Yale University. She's a great book, which is called What is Divine Law? I think that's the title. And the thesis that she lays out is that both the biblical tradition and the Greek tradition are unified in affirming the absolute centrality of the divine command and divine law for the operation of society. Society is totally incoherent without those things. But from there, they completely diverge because for the Greek system, divine law is universal. It's applicable equally in every time and every place. It's completely rational and it's non-changing. And it's also not even ideal. Like, in other words, positive commands are sort of things we need or are a crutch for us, but ideally we wouldn't need them. Whereas in the biblical tradition, 
divine law can be those things, but it can also be particular. It could be non-rational. In other words, God commands the Israelites all the time to do things just because I am God or because you're my chosen nation, right? Don't eat pork, for example. It can sort of apply differently in different times and places. So there's a time in history where the Israelites can bring sacrifices on any altar they want. And then there's a time in history where they can only bring it in one place. And for most of history, those two worldviews kind of exist in parallel, but not in contact. So Socrates is wandering the streets of Athens at the same time that Ezra is wandering the streets of Jerusalem, but they never meet. Then, as the fourth century comes to a close, there's this cataclysmic moment of meeting when Alexander conquers the East. And it's at that moment that the Greek worldview and the biblical worldview collide and the entire subsequent rest of history is the story of the impact or the result of that collision. And we're sort of like still unpacking that collision today. And the point that she makes is that at least at the time and arguably since, really every single thinker who has to reconcile these two different and in, in ways like diametrically opposed accounts of divine law really end up, I mean, because you have to choose either to read the biblical worldview in light of the Greek one or read the Greek one in light of the biblical one. But you have to make one fit the category of the other. You have to sort of approach with a prior assumption about one category. And what she argues is that every single thinker really chooses the Greek worldview and then just tries to reread the Bible in light of that worldview. So Philo does this by saying, well, of course, all divine law is natural and, you know, mathematical. And it's just that the Bible is the highest form of that, right? Eusebius, the great church historian, does the same thing by saying that, well, he, unlike Philo, concedes that the Bible is particularistic and historical and so forth, that he just says that's why it couldn't be the end of history, right? You need what he would have called the New Testament. And she points out that the only exception to this in the entire history of Western, or for lack of a better term, Western thought, is rabbinic literature, which very self-consciously sort of adopts the biblical worldview that the world is sort of full of these divine commands that are like mysterious, not irrational, but non-rational and historical and story is so much more important than system and category and mathematics. And historically speaking, if you're sort of from the rabbinic tradition of sort of assuming the biblical worldview, what you've usually done is either try to reread all of Greece in light of the Bible by sort of throwing yourself at the walls of Greece, right? So you've like martyred yourself, right? So you either like attack Greece or you try to assimilate it somehow into the biblical tradition, which is sort of kind of what Maimonides does or, or what Rosagagon does a little earlier than Maimonides in the ninth century. So where I see you is I see you as kind of like a hero of the Chris Hayes story where what you do is by all appearances, in the Greek tradition, because you're writing like billion mega threads on like all of these great thinkers who themselves were either deeply classical thinkers or like Heidegger, even if they like are here to critique the rational tradition, like they start as classicists, right? Like Nietzsche was a classicist. Heidegger was a classicist. Leo Strauss like has deep, deep, deep classical learning. But what you really are, and you're not a double agent, right? Like you're not trying to assassinate the classical tradition from within, but what you're doing is like you are sort of in a very Kabbalistic way going into the depths of Greek learning and rescuing its divine sparks from within and showing how really the biblical worldview permeates the world of Greece. In fact, this wasn't a conflict to begin with. And it's not not a conflict because the Bible really is Greece, but on the contrary, because Greece at the end of the day really is a commentary on the Bible. 
that's my reading of you. So what do you think of that? <laughs> Very Tyler Cowenian question. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm moved. I think there's more than a grain of truth in it. I deeply resonate with the rabbinic project, especially the project of simply having fun and being naughty. Now we're talking. <laughs> in describing God and heaven in ways that are so embarrassing if you're looking for lucidity and clarity and enlightenment. I mean, I just find that to imagine God and the angels as like sophists having arguments is just so delightful. I do think that there's a turn away from the Bible and the Talmud in that the biblical God takes us out of Egypt and the biblical God proves our choice through conquest. In the time of the rabbis, which is a time of transition, vulnerability, a weakness even, I see God as a little bit more passive, more weak, more in need of human agency. There's some really great text to this effect where Moses has to save God from, let's say, a vow that God makes that God needs to get out of. And so Moses serves as God's rabbi, basically. <laughs> and you know, I, one could give many examples. But to the question of the clash of civilizations, I don't really see it as a clash. Maybe historically it was. I'm privileged to live in a time where I'm not persecuted by the Greeks or the Christians for being Jewish. You know, I'm not living in Nazi Germany. That privilege allows me to read thinkers that if I lived in their time, I probably would not be as generous towards. So I don't have a clash of civilizations theory in part because I'm living in a time of great synchronicity and reshuffling. But what I would say is that it's the nature of the human being to have weirdness <laughs> constitute that person. And the Torah gets that in a way that philosophy doesn't. Philosophy sees the weirdness as an embarrassment. And postmodern philosophy is trying to bring that back in, let's say, you know, with Martha Nussbaum showing how emotion has actually been part of what it is to be a person, or with trends in feminism focusing on embodiment and that kind of thing. But in my view, the Jews have, have long known that because the Jews never separated spirit from letter. We were the OG weirdos. We're the OG weirdos. And in terms of typology, I see Rome or, or Greece as Asav and Jerusalem as Jacob. So there are twin, there are lookalike. And we influence them and they influence us. And it's a struggle in part because of that similarity. It's a fraternal struggle. It's not the struggle of enemies. It's the struggle of people trying to individuate because they're so close. There are no endings, but if there were, that's a perfect way to end. Amen. Zohar, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was amazing. Okay, so right after I recorded the pod with Zohar, I had to run to teach my class on Biblical Hebrew for The Catherine Project, an amazing initiative founded by previous Good Faith Effort guest Zena Hitz. Shouts to Zena. Look him up at catherineproject.org. And because God is amazing, uh, one of the things that came up is the notion that the biblical Hebrew word olam can mean both the world and eternal. So the word olam can describe both the earth, the realm of the finite, and God, the repository of infinity. In that word is found the paradox that I see Zohar getting at. 
we want to and should want to transform the world for the better, the world as it is, into the world as it ought to be. But to do that, we need to reach beyond the world, into the mysterious, into the eternal, into the very thing that reveals that our pursuit of perfection is always asymptotic, it's always approaching the mark, but incapable of ever getting to the mark itself. The finite needs infinity, and infinity is wonderful precisely because it holds out hope for we finite beings in this finite world. And that, to me, is just immeasurably comforting and uplifting. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, just head into Apple Podcasts, head into iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Soul Shot Podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. <laughs>